Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Jason Owen-Smith. Jason is a sociologist who examines how complex networks among people and organizations shape knowledge, work, and innovation. Jason is particularly interested in research universities and in the dynamics of scientific collaboration networks. Findings from this research have been published in outlets including Administrative Science Quarterly, the American Journal of Sociology, the American Sociological Review, Cell, Cell Stem Cell, Higher Education, JAMA Surgery, Management Science, Medical Care, Nature Biotechnology, Nature Methods, Organization Science, Research Policy, Science, and Social Studies of Science. Jason is a co-founder and executive director of the Institute for Research on Innovation in Science, also known as IRIS. Additionally, he is a professor of sociology and research professor in the Institute for Social Research at the University of Michigan. In 2006, Jason received a National Science Foundation Faculty Early Career Development Award and an Alfred P. Sloan Foundation Industry Study Fellowship in Biotechnology. In 2008, he was awarded the University of Michigan's Henry Russell Award, which recognizes mid-career faculty for exceptional scholarship and conspicuous teaching ability. In 2014, he was awarded the LSA Excellence in Teaching Award and the John Dewey Award by the College of Literature, Science, and the Arts. Jason received his MA and PhDs in Sociology at the University of Arizona, and a BA in Sociology and Philosophy from the New College of Florida. And with that extremely impressive background, welcome to the podcast, Jason. Thanks very much. I appreciate your inviting me to be here. Yeah, thanks again for taking part in the podcast. I'm really excited to have this opportunity to talk to you today, and in particular to talk about your book, Research Universities and the Public Good, Discovery for an Uncertain Future, which was published in 2018 by the Stanford Business Books. And speaking of your book, in it, you mentioned that research universities are the keystones in the nation's knowledge infrastructure and the core of what former Google CEO Eric Schmidt and prominent geneticist Eric Lander called the miracle machine that are powered by federal investments in science and technology. You argue that such research is misunderstood and that too few people both in government and in the public understand how that machine works. And the goal of your book is to seek change by describing how public investments in research universities create and sustain a system that helps keep our nation, as well as our world, poised to shape and respond to an uncertain future, which we all know recently we're in a very uncertain future. But before getting too far into the book, can you give us some background as to what led you to do research in this area and then ultimately write this great book? Sure. I'd be happy to, Lisa. Um, So this book grew out of about 20 years of academic work 
which focused very heavily on questions about how um, particularly technology-intensive industries worked, with a large focus early in my career on understanding the human therapeutic and diagnostic biotechnology industry. That led to an interest in intellectual property, patenting and licensing, and various corporate strategies for innovation, particularly collaborative strategies through strategic alliances. And along the way, what I discovered was that um, universities, particularly the big research-intensive universities, played a really exceptionally important role in both the early genesis and the evolution of that industry and of a few others. Um, you only have to think about the role of Stanford in Silicon Valley and the semiconductor industry, for instance, to see this isn't an isolated case. And so I became very, very interested in understanding how these large publicly funded academic institutions um, did work that both sort of pushed the boundaries and frontiers of human knowledge and um, made real contributions to new industries, new discoveries, and the economy. And so that's the work that I've been doing for many years when in 2012 or 13, I had an opportunity to sit on a National Academy of Sciences panel uh, whose charge was to basically evaluate and make some recommendations about the state of the United States research enterprise. And I was, um, I guess the best way to put it is a little bit frustrated by the ways in which uh, we currently talk and think about the public value of research universities. So not to put too fine a point on it, uh, U.S. universities spent about $79 billion on research in 2018, which is the last year that we have uh, recent data for, that works out to about $220 a person for every man, woman, and child in the country. And that's not a lot relative to, say, servicing the national debt or the cost of health care. But um, in a time, uh, at the time when we were coming out of the Great Recession, and now, and with a political situation that is I think, increasingly skeptical of expertise of all sorts, let alone academic expertise, uh, it's very difficult to make the case that this is a really valuable societal contribution. And I saw most of the language about that moving away from what I thought were the most important kinds of things, which basically amount to thinking of universities as a knowledge infrastructure and toward trying to uh, essentially figure out how to do cost-benefit analysis on individual grants or discoveries. Um, I also, in the course of that, had a chance to do a lot of work in the policy world and science policy. And what I found there is that even um, outside of universities, even the people who were really strong allies and, and really committed to supporting science and research often had trouble articulating a case. And so the goal of this book was to try to help distill the work I'd been doing over many years um, in a fashion that would let people potentially see the institution the way someone like me sees it and also um, get enough 
sort of specific detail to be able to explain what they saw and why it might be supportable to various constituents. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So your book is directed at research universities. For any of our listeners who might not be familiar, can you explain what a research university is, how they're different from universities that do not conduct any research, and how these universities are typically funded, and in particular, how they've been funded over time up into including the present? Sure. Um, The first thing to say there, Lisa, is that to the best of my knowledge, there are no universities that don't do any research, right? Research is an important part of the mission of pretty much every college and university. Um, What we're talking about when I say research universities is kind of the balance of attention. And so there's also not a good consensus definition Uh, The most commonly used one is the Carnegie classifications, which rate universities by their research intensity. On that scale, I'm talking about the most research-intensive universities. Uh, To put a very fine point on it, what I said in the book uh, was that if you think about that $79 billion of research spending that I talked about... um, about 150 universities around the country account for a little bit more than 90% of that spending. To get the last 10%, you have to go out to another 700 or so universities. And so when I say research universities, what I'm really talking about is these big, quite often public, but sometimes private nonprofit um, flagship institutions that do really substantial funded research and that have research as a primary component of their mission. They're also distinguished by typically having a wide range of doctoral training programs and postdoctoral fellows kinds of programs. And by doing that work across a really broad swath of human knowledge, right? So not just in one field or one area, but spread across many fields. Um, So that's what I mean when I say research universities, and people can quibble about what's there at the margin. I don't actually have a terribly strong definition because I think one of the, the questions that the way I think about the book and the argument asks us as a society is, you know, is 150 enough? Is it too many? Is the system not diverse enough to accomplish the goals we want? And we don't currently have a way to think in or talk in those terms. As to funding, um, there's a mix of things. So universities uh, can be broken down very broadly into those that are public and those that are private by which I largely mean private nonprofit. I'm going to set aside all of the for-profit universities, the University of Phoenix and others, yep. um, which are a different kind of university. Kind of yeah. um, so private universities and public universities share a reliance on basically three sources of revenue. Right? There's revenue that comes from tuition, where students at all levels and their families 
pay tuition in return for an education and a credential and all that good stuff. There's philanthropic donations where generally alumni um, make gifts to the university from which they graduated. And there are research funds which uh, come in largely from external sources. Uh, the biggest funder of research is still the federal government, but I'll talk about how that trend is changing in a second. Um, in addition to that, public universities typically also receive an appropriation from their state. Um, but especially since the Great Recession and beginning in the late 1970s, there's been a large-scale um, decrease in state support for public universities, which means that increasingly public universities are looking at the same revenue sources as private institutions. In terms of research specifically, um, since about the end of World War II, when the system that we have now for research was you know, first kind of kicked off and started evolving in the direction we currently are. Uh, the federal government in the form of science agencies, things like the National Science Foundation and National Institutes of Health, funded the vast majority of research. In the last 25 years or so, and especially again, since the Great Recession, about the last 10 or 12 years, um, federal research funding has largely flattened or even when you control for or, or even declined slightly when you control for inflation and, and deflate the amounts. Um, the largest source of money that universities has grown to fill the gap um, is actually funds from the universities themselves. So this is them using money that comes from their healthcare systems or other activities to fund research. Um, in addition, there's uh, significant but smaller amounts of research funding on the order, I think, of 7 or 8% each from industrial sources, so companies, and from nonprofits like the big foundations, so something like the Gates Foundation, which you've heard about. And that shift is part of what we're talking about. Um, you know, one of the reasons I think that shift has happened is that... Um, Universities haven't done collectively as good a job of explaining their value to Congress, to the executive branch, and to the public. Um, and I believe the current trend, if it continues in this direction, is unsustainable because universities don't have a lot of ways to continue supporting more and more of the important research. I'll be curious, um, in view of this pandemic and everything that's going on with universities having to refund tuition and, and you yep. know, but we're at tremendous, you know, some would argue depression levels of unemployment. What yep. do you think this is? And the government's going to have, I mean, we're already in huge debt. It's going to be even worse now. What do you see for university funding and, you know, the next year or five years even? It's a it's a it's a very, very challenging. Yeah situation. So uh, without going too deeply into it, uh, pretty much every university in the country right now is seeing its costs skyrocket while all of its sources of revenue that we've described either dry up or shrink. Um, and that's a recipe for for disaster in, in a lot of ways. Now, there are... Um, 
steps to help uh, as part of the CARES Act, the last stimulus bill. There was some money to support universities. Um, there's a new bill in Congress uh, in the Senate um, sponsored by Senator Schumer uh, that would dramatically expand the National Science Foundation and rename it the National Science and Technology Foundation. Um, and uh, those are those are good things, but for the research enterprise, uh, the the costs of shutting down and restarting research through the pandemic are really significant. And right now, there is not a systematic way to respond to them. Part of the challenge, as my, my book suggests, is that this is a really important system for our society and our world. But in many ways, it's also fragile. And it's fragile in part because it depends very heavily on a highly skilled and expert workforce. And one of the worries is that um, really smart, really talented early career folks facing this kind of, you know, triple or quadruple whammy um, effect may simply leave the academy. And that's a very hard thing to, to manage. Yeah, it's it's really been tremendous. Let's turn back to your book. And one of the things you write about is that the most important inputs for advanced economies are knowledge and creativity, and that we really entrust our research universities with some of the most pressing missions that a society concerned about its future could have. And in fact, you refer to it as a kind of social insurance. You pay the money, and if nothing happens, great, fantastic. You get to learn more about the universe, the ocean, whatever. But in the event something does happen, you're ready. Mm -hmm. I'll be curious to know how this relates to some of the current challenges and pressures that universities are facing. Things like, number one, unbundling their research, teaching, service, and even components of their degree programs. Two, streamlining their organization to address current market needs. Three, reducing or eliminating programs that don't have a clear and immediate application to the problems we're currently facing as a country. And number four, how they become more responsive to market discipline. Mm -hmm. There's there's a whole lot there. Um, probably could spend the whole podcast yeah. on that question. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna cherry pick a little bit and have you direct me if I uh, if you think there are ways I can go that can be more interesting to your audience. Sounds good. Um, so. I do believe that universities are a form of social insurance, and I'll talk more in later parts of this discussion about how I think that works, but what makes them a particularly novel form of social insurance, a particularly important one, is that universities, by virtue of the very mix of their missions, by putting together research, teaching, and, ser and public service across a huge range of human knowledge, right, with lots of students from lots of places at lots of levels, um, develop and sustain a bunch of capacities that make them, I believe and argue, unique in our society in their ability to address problems we don't necessarily know we have yet. What... Uh, I jokingly say in the book, noted philosopher of science, Donald Rumsfeld, once called unknown unknowns. Yeah, um, and that was great. The uh, So the idea here, and one way to put a very fine 
example on it, uh, I start early in the book by describing the case of Google's PageRank technology by looking at and tracing patent citations, non-patent prior art citations, and looking at the file wrapper for the original patent, um, geeking out in the way that only patent geeks ever do. I'm um, so impressed that you know what a file wrapper is, and I, I applaud you for going to that level of detail. Um, and what I found there is that if you, you ask a simple question, which is, what grants do the papers that are cited as non-patent prior art in Google's PageRank technology. And when I say the papers here, I mean the papers that were part of the original inventor submission, not assignee, not examiner added citations. Yeah. Cited prior art. Yep. Um, when you look at those, you go and pull down those papers. They acknowledge uh, grants from all kinds of federal agencies and corporations and foundations, but the, the plurality of them come from the National Science Foundation. And the first of them, um, the earliest grant that I can find that was a direct precursor, if you will, uh, was a sociology grant to researchers who are, I know, um, they're actually avowed Marxists. And the grant <laughs> was to study the ways in which the network of corporate Inter of, of corporate interlocks among boards of directors created and sustained a shadowy power elite that controls our politics and, and economics. Um, that grant led to a little methodological paper called something like um, Mathematical Models for the Decomposition of Eigenvector Centrality, which is <laughs> as great a read as you might expect. Um, <laughs> I, I can't even imagine. <laughs> <laughs> but that paper um, is what was cited by Google because it solved or helped to solve a little mathematical problem in Google's technology, which is also a network technology. So that brings us back to the unknown, unknown unknowns. If we really wanted to build and sustain a university system that can help us address unknown unknowns, all right, take advantage of opportunities we don't know we have yet or address problems we don't know we have yet. We have to become comfortable with and think about the possibility that we may know right now as much about what we'll need as a society in 20 or 30 years as a sociology program officer at the National Science Foundation in 1974 understood about search problems on the World Wide Web. Yep. That's, that's the challenge. Yep. Uh, <laughs> it's a big challenge. And... Um, one of the answers, I think, is that they're relatively, this gets to your, your list of things that are challenges for universities. There are relatively few types of organizations in our society that actually plausibly have the capability to do this kind of stuff. And one of the reasons universities do is because they cover lots of fields, right? Yep. One never would have thought that sociology might be important to a patent pod, uh, tech chance or podcast, for example, who would have thought? Right. But, you know, I routinely have students who study networks now um, hired by big tech companies who are looking for data analytic capabilities. And so if you think about a university, there's no mechanism at all and no reason in a market or economically driven world why a corporation would keep a bunch of sociologists around. Um. But universities do. Yep, absolutely. Um, and so the challenges of 
streamlining, of focusing narrowly on, if you will, known unknowns, um, are that we lose some of the capability to be able to be able to identify and respond to things that we don't currently know are problems. And I worry very much that in a kind of quest for efficiency in an institution that in some ways is designed precisely to maintain slack capabilities for society, I worry that a focus on efficiency is actually going to destroy that very capability. And I think that's a good transition into what you spend a large portion and maybe even the majority of your book focusing on, which is how research universities ensure our future because their history, organization and public support upon them, um, on which we all depend, makes them, you know, sources of knowledge and skilled people. It makes them anchors for communities, industries and regions. And then it makes them hubs that connect far-flung parts of society. And I think these are really important points you make in the book that that maybe we can talk about each in a little bit more detail. And if we start with that sources of knowledge and skilled people, to your point that you were just making, um, because research universities are sources of this knowledge and these these skilled individuals, we get new things that are discovered, we get new skills that are discovered, and new purposes to which both are put that result in innovations. So you can, can you talk a little bit about what innovation is and how research is conducted at universities that ultimately leads to this innovation? Sure. Um, and I should say this is in my role as executive director of IRIS. Um, what IRIS is in many ways is uh, an effort to put the rubber analytically on the road around this view of universities. So we're a data repository that's part of the anchor for a consortium of 35 universities right now who share really detailed data about how they spend their research funds, which lets us begin to do things like what I just did um, with the Google case systematically, right? Trace out who's trained on a grant where they get a job what innovations they do, whether they patent or not, and whether they continue. Um, what that all does is help us to really quantify, understand, explain, and I hope improve the ways in which universities do this really important job. And I think one key to it is that universities, at least in their research mission, are very different than, say, corporate R&D, at least current corporate R&D. And you can make an argument about the great corporate labs, Bell Labs, and others, but those are largely less important or gone at this point. Most um, of them are gone, yeah. Yeah, and one of the things that makes universities this way is that uh, they're not centrally directed. Right? In some ways, they're... Um, best thought of as a kind of shared platform on which a lot of different people collaborate and compete as they pursue their own intellectual agendas. Right? And what that means is that in microcosm, and I think this is exacerbated um, in good ways by some of the competitiveness of the, the federal grants process, in microcosm, universities are very entrepreneurial places. Um, they're not entrepreneurial in the sense that you're starting a venture, but, um, you know, Iris has a 
a, a revenue stream, a budget of about $2.1 million a year, which comes from lots of places, including from universities who get a bunch of products for us that, that from us that they find valuable. And being able to build and sustain that gives me the ability and the people who work with me the ability to ask and answer questions that we couldn't otherwise. Right? And that happens over and over and over again in all kinds of fields on university campuses. And I think it's that very bottom-up character and it's very curiosity-driven character that means that university research can be particularly fertile. Um, one of the reasons for that is if you think about the difference between, say, a corporate R&D process and a university, um, one of my favorite examples, I wrote a paper with a grad student of mine a little while ago, which was about a new measure of patent impact based on patent prior art citations. And what we were interested in was not just knowing how many times a given patent is cited, but what the things that cited it, cited beyond it. Right? So the uh, idea was, if I patent something, and I have a set of prior art, and then most of the things that cite me as prior art, cite my prior art as well, that's kind of deepening a knowledge trajectory. It's, in an extreme case, building what my licensing friends would call a picket fence. Yes. So the great... The great example of that is uh, we found a lovely patent by Monsanto for a genetically engineered soybean that was genetically engineered to be especially resistant to glycophosphate, which is the primary active ingredient in Roundup. So here's a corporation doing research as its flagship product was going off patent to be able to sell more of that patent of that product. That's very different than what would happen at universities where there's not a central direction. So we see a lot of evidence that university intellectual property tends to be more what we would call disruptive of current technology trajectories than many firm R&D efforts. Yeah, and I think CRISPR is probably a recent example, probably of that, a very good disruptor that um, is really having tremendous impact all over the world. Yep, absolutely. And if you go back to my story about biotechnology, right, the core innovations of biotechnology, right, monoclonal antibodies and, and genetic chimeras, um, both came out of universities. Now, PCR didn't. That came out of a, a biotech firm. But, you know. That's actually pretty amazing. That is. You don't see that, to your point, very often. L let's talk a little bit about um, how the environment for knowledge at research universities often leads to the creation of innovative research networks. Can you explain a little bit about what these networks are, the features of these innovative research networks, and how they grow? Yeah. Um Again, this is something uh, my academic specialty is actually complex networks, and that's the tool, set of tools that I use to study a lot of these questions. So it's hard to understand really big, complicated networks. I mean, think about the simple problem of trying to figure out, say you're on Facebook or LinkedIn, right, and you want to know how many of the people that your friends have as friends are people you know in real life. 
It's a nearly impossible challenge for a normal person. So to to avoid jumping into the math, um, or and that avoids the eigenvector decomposition problem. <laughs> um, or People are to like, oh uh, no, stop. <laughs> <laughs> yes, or to uh, um, and, and to make it a little bit more concrete, think about my book. Right? My book's a thing. Right? It results in a couple of years of work um, by me. My name is the only name on the cover. But the research that let me write that book took 10 or 15 years. It was funded both by my university and a couple of foundations and the National Science Foundation. And what's really important is that I didn't do it alone. I couldn't have done it alone. And so over the course of that funding, I had graduate students working with me. I had postdocs working with me. I had more than 40 undergraduate research assistants over the course of the projects that wrote these books. And I had a number of faculty collaborators, both at my institution and elsewhere. And so if you really think realistically about what it took to produce this book, I'm responsible for it. My name's on it. None of these people need to be called into question or asked hard questions about the book. But in reality, the book was actually produced by a big network of lots of different types of people. And what's really important to know is that most of them, if not all of them, also had other projects they were working on, either their own dissertations or other grants or work with a different faculty member. And so if you take that, the description of what it went into my book, and you multiply it a couple of thousand times for, say, every faculty member at a place like the University of Michigan. And then you, you, you get a sense, a little snapshot of what the network that underpins research on a campus like mine looks like. And if you take that and you multiply it, say, 150 times, one for each major research university, and you let them connect to each other, and you make this happen across not just sociology, but every other field, right? Art and design. Some places have theology schools, agriculture, um, you name it. You get a picture of the network that I'm interested in describing and talking about. And it's that that I think is the real source of capabilities for innovation. Um, to go back to your initial question about innovation, um, in order to understand that, you have to understand how someone like me thinks about innovation, which is to say that innovations, as I think of them, represent new ways of thinking about or doing something or new something new or new ways to do something that we knew how to do, but to do it better. And the way you do that is not by sitting back and having a great idea in isolation, Innovation is actually what a famous economist named Joseph Schumpeter called a recombinant process. There are very few new things, truly new things under the sun. Instead, new innovations come from taking existing pieces of knowledge that haven't been combined before and combining them in new ways. And at the frontiers of knowledge, right, where you're, you're feeling your way across the river with the stones because nobody's ever answered the question you're answering before, The best way to figure out 
what exactly the components of a solution to a problem you're trying to deal with are, are often by talking to people through your networks who know different things than you. And that's why these are, I think, both the central piece of what makes universities really important and the thing we should be supporting and what's really endangered by stuff like the current state with COVID, where we may lose really important nodes, people in that network and render the whole thing more fragile for the future. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big concern. And, you know, after you talked about sources of knowledge and skilled people, you moved on and talk about universities serving as anchors. And you talk about how they're more geographically fixed than many other types of organizations. They draw people to them which, you know, I think is something we've all missed in the last couple months since we've all been quarantined, <laughs> quite frankly. And they serve as anchors for networks of interorganizational relationships that characterize robust industrial districts. I mean, we've all used the phrase college town, right? And everything yep. that goes grows up around a so-called college town. So, and, and you talk about universities contributing to communities that they participate in by acting like universities, so can you talk a little bit about that phrase that you use in your book that universities acting like universities or that they should act like universities? Yep. Um, there are a couple of ways to, to think about that. I mean, the, the first is you're absolutely right. Universities are distinguished by being geographically fixed. So just as a, a thought experiment. There are maybe two or three things that I really, truly know about the University of Michigan. One is that it's probably not going out of business anytime soon. Um, that's not true even of large corporations, right? The Fortune mm. 500 has turned over pretty dramatically. And, and we're seeing a lot of that right now. And I'm afraid in the next few months, we're going to even see a lot more of it. Right. It also, um, which is really important in my part of the world, um, Michigan and, and Auto Alley, the University of Michigan is not going to pick up and move to Alabama or to Singapore or to Texas, right? If you, you, you can barely imagine Yale in Seattle or the University of Alabama in Nebraska, right? And so in many ways, universities serve as hubs because they're anchored in their places. They're affiliated with and identified with their places. And the legacy of both um, sort of often really deep alumni relationships and sometimes multi-generational families that go to the same university and of all the public support means that in many ways they're insulated from the kinds of shocks that might drive other big employers away. And so the question is, how, do you, how should universities be working in that fashion? And I think one of the important answers gets to your question, which is that universities should do this by acting like universities, which means for me, they should be as open as possible. They should be as committed as possible to getting you know, their students where they want to be and where they need to be, to getting their technologies and discoveries out into the world. Um, in an extreme case, uh, in sort of the world of technology transfer, I think there's uh, there are in many instances arguments that could be made about the relative value of non-exclusive kinds of licensing deals for many technologies. Um, 
for societal benefit purposes, if not for revenue generation purposes. Um, that varies a little because OTTs tend to be sort of one of the sharp ends of the, the spear for business purposes. Um, but what it means basically is that universities shouldn't close themselves off. They should, in classic terms, both create a commons, a pool of knowledge and skill that can be broadly used by lots of people and that isn't diminished by me using it or you. I mean, one of the nice things about intellectual property and why we need patents, right, is that knowledge and innovation isn't like a pair of shoes, right? If you're wearing a pair of shoes, I can't wear it. But if you can use an idea, I can use it too. Um, exactly. So I, I think universities should do what they can to facilitate that. And in doing it, um, what they do is help to be a scaffold to create connections among the members of their community or industry. And so the example I use in the book is the role UC Davis played in the evolution and sustain sustainment of the Napa Valley wine industry. And you can sort of get a sense of both how universities are embedded locally and how that embeddedness changes their character. So part of the diversity of the system is that universities live in different places. They put similar types of knowledge together through different networks. And because they're embedded in and working with different communities and industries, they're prone to do different kinds of research, even around the same problem. Um, so think about what it might mean to be an electrical engineering graduate of Stanford as opposed to Michigan. Because of the long historical legacy of corporate engagement, one means you're probably going into IT or semiconductors. Pretty the much. Yeah. The auto industry. Yep, exactly. Um, yeah. And for people who um, are thinking about reading your book, that's a great example with UC Davis and the wine industry. It's actually something that once you start to think about it, it makes a lot of sense. So I'm not going to give it away, but people should definitely read your book to learn more about that story. And that ties in, you mentioned hubs, and and that was kind of the third aspects um, that you emphasize in the book that Universities are hubs because they link communities, they draw far-flung parts of the world closer together. And in fact, you say that in the book that the hub generally evokes two things. And this, I thought, was a great kind of uh, description. You talk about wheels and airports. So I was wondering if you could tell everybody and explain a little bit how wheels and airports relate to how universities function as hubs. I, I thought that was a great analogy and, and description. I'm I'm glad you liked it. That's I, I liked both of those. My my other favorite was uh, when talking about them as anchors, the the relationship to shopping malls. Um, I avoided that because uh, right now so many anchors of our shopping malls are not doing so well. Yeah, so I wanted to avoid yeah. that. I, I if I had the book to write over again now, I would avoid that metaphor too. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's the the world marches on. Um, when I say something is a hub, I like the example of wheels and airports, right? Because if you think of the hub of a wheel, right, it's the thing the axle connects to. The hub of a wheel is what allows the wheel to connect to a machine like a car or a cart and make it move. And it keeps the wheel working because the spokes connect to the hub and provide stability and support for the entire structure. 
So that's one way of thinking of it. By being central and by being stable in many ways, universities provide a hub in the sense that you might see the hub of a wheel. In terms of airports, um, I spend a ton of time in airports, unfortunately, or at least I used to. Used to. Um, <laughs> and uh, you can't spend time in airports without passing through hub airports. Right? Hub airports have a couple of characteristics. One, they're a shortcut between places that are often really hard to get to directly. So there are very few direct flights to many cities from Detroit, um, though there are more because it's a hub airport. Um, but if I need to get to another city, I can fly to Chicago and change planes or Minneapolis. You can tell I fly Delta. Um, <laughs> and the idea there is that being a hub means you're only one or two steps in network terms from a really wide variety of places, right? If you live near Atlanta's Hartfield Jackson or DCW, you're literally one hop from any, any place in the world, pretty much. Um, and that means that knowledge and information and even problems can travel through those. It also means that you have to think about these institutions in the way you would think about hub airports. Right? It wouldn't be surprising in a hub airport to see people from lots of different countries and to hear lots of different languages spoken. And while I know that lots of people travel to Chicago for the purposes of going to Chicago, I bet you many more people go to Chicago just to pass through O'Hare. And there are ways in which universities are like that, too. We're one of the only institutions in the country where, by design, like every six years, the vast majority of the members of the institution, students, faculty, staff, especially students, turn over. Right? Our job is to teach people and get them out into the world, into other places. Um, and what that means is that because we teach in lots of different areas, because we research in lots of different areas, because universities are embedded in different local communities, right, universities become a shortcut between pretty much any part of society. Think of another institution where you could stand in the center of campus and get to professional sports, the officer corps, the military, the judici judiciary, the top echelons of pretty much every industry. Um, Hollywood and the arts. Right? And so the idea is that by being a hub, universities are positioned to have new problems and new opportunities flow to them from all over society. Because they're an anchor, they represent a kind of permanent endowment of capabilities. And because they're sources and they have these really rich internal networks, they maintain the capabilities to be able to identify and potentially respond to those problems when they come to us. And it's the ability to do all three of those things at once, which I think no other institution in society can, that make them really special and that make them this form of social insurance. And that's a large part of what we try to measure and describe systematically with IRIS. At the end of your book, when you're talking about the future, you argue that we need to treat research universities as a special case of higher education institutions that are uniquely suited to act just as we were talking about as these sources, as these anchors and these hubs, and that by doing so, they're going to keep us ready to address any unexpected problems and will benefit from the new possibilities, many of which that they'll help 
create. And you gave some great examples of that and how they've done that in the past. What can we do to expand and sustain our university's ability to act as these sources, anchors, and hubs? Um, there are a lot of things. Uh, one obvious one is to find ways to protect and sustain the very features we've been describing. Right. So one of the worries, if public support for universities declines and they become more subject, as you said earlier, to market discipline immediately, what that means is that many of the things that we don't know are important necessarily immediately right now won't have a rationale for maintaining them, whether that's academic programs for students or areas of research that are not immediately commercializable um, at the moment. Uh, so public support of various types is really important. And by this, I mean both federal support in the form of grants and also in the form of the kind of subsidies that come from federal financial aid for students and from nonprofit status, honestly. Um, I also mean state support um, in, in many ways. Or, or for more, many universities. So that's one. Uh, two, I think that it's really, really important for universities to do this, to think beyond a single institution, to start thinking about the system of universities. Right? So no one university has all the connections or capabilities our society needs. It's actually the fact that we have 150, 200 of these things in different parts of the country, doing different work, connecting to different industries that ensure we can do this. And so one of the big worries about COVID right now is that the outcome of that will be to even further concentrate these capabilities in a smaller number of institutions and places, hurting the diversity of the enterprise or the ecosystem and making the whole thing a little bit less resilient and flexible. So thinking about and figuring out how to maintain the diversity of the system through times when it is not legitimate to simply say, we need to keep growing, trust us, it'll be great, um, right? So there's that. Things that universities can do, I think it's really, really important. This is one of the reasons why I run IRIS and why we're developing it that institutions like this turn their best knowledge and research on themselves and really seriously think about the key features of their mission and how they can better understand them and make good strategic decisions with admittedly limited resources with a focus very much on maintaining these capabilities. Um, I think that what that calls for is a type of disciplined experimentation. Um, and when I say disciplined, I mean disciplined by data and goals. Um, but I think allowing and expecting and supporting institutions trying to do new things, and maybe if they don't work, sunsetting them, um, you know, is really important. I also think it's really important for institutions to be able to make the case in as clear a set of terms as possible that this very complicated set of ideas um, is important and that it be important not just to 
people like me who live in them, right? Or even people who graduated from them or send their children to them. But, you know, the people you sit down next to in a coffee shop, right, whose tax dollars help to support this infrastructure, right? And, you know, it's great, absolutely, to understand more about the world and ourselves and our universe. Um, Human knowledge, I think, is an implicit good, and I think universities are essential to developing it. But all of the public investments in universities come on some baseline assumption that not only will we develop the state of human knowledge and educate as wide a range of people as possible, but we will also do that work in a fashion that improves the quality of life, the health, wealth, and well-being of the citizens of our society and the world. And in order to explain how we do that, we need to better understand how we do that. Um, And so I think a key thing beyond the resources, beyond the experimentation, is really good systematic data and analysis that takes seriously these different missions and tries to understand, explain, and improve them. That's great. And hopefully universities will start to work together on that front to try and get that message out a little bit more clearly and a little bit more loudly. And maybe it'll resonate a little bit more after this pandemic. I I don't know. We can only hope, right? Yep. And there's there's a whole nother... Um, in the book, I use the example of how universities helped with response to the Zika virus Yes, um, mm-hmm. a few years ago. Many of the responses we're seeing to the coronavirus pandemic represent exactly the kinds of capacities that universities have that can be repurposed. Now, this isn't quite an unknown unknown because we know pandemics are likely to happen and we can plan for them. But universities have been right on the front lines here. Um, in everything from finding new ways to to make and clean ventilators to doing hardcore CRISPR based exactly kinds of genetic studies and um, work in public health and sociology, you probably go like almost everybody else I know to the Johns Hopkins COVID site absolutely in order to understand what the cases are, and that's only possible. That thing was stood up in like a week. It's incredible. And I think the other thing is the university private sector partnership that has been going on and the cooperation that I've seen uh, in the last few months in view of this pandemic has been really inspirational as well. And I'm hoping that the public will see that as well, because a lot of the things that have gotten out um, or been put out rather by industry so quickly has been the result of cooperative efforts with universities. Yep, absolutely. And that's um, that speaks very much to the notion of universities and anchors as anchors and hubs. Anybody who works in things like licensing or, um, you know, corporate strategic alliance management knows that successful partnerships at the level of organizations don't come out of nowhere. Exactly. Exactly. Right. If you don't have a groundwork, you're not going to be able to do things really fast and under stress. Absolutely. Well, Jason, I can't thank you enough for all your insights and time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. If any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you any questions, where can they reach you? Um, you know, my uh, University of Michigan email is uh, is out there on the web. It's jdos at umich.edu. And, uh, you know, you can find 
way more information about me if you go looking. And uh, as I, I think I said to you, almost everything that I've said today appears in one form or another, except the COVID stuff, which hadn't happened when I wrote the book, in the book. So that's another good way to get a little bit more of a sense of what I do. And I can attest it's an fascinating read. So I'm hoping our visitors will and our listeners will go out and and get a copy and and read it because it it is very, very insightful. So thank you so much again, Jason. It's been great to have this opportunity to just talk to you. Thanks so much, Lisa. This was fun. I'll, I'll look forward to hearing what your listeners think. Excellent. Thanks again, Jason. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and align on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.